Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. Today's episode, I'm joined by Zach and Heather Knight. Heather is currently serving as the founder and chair of Surviving to Thriving, an Atlanta-based nonprofit that provides a long-term sustainability program for victims of domestic violence. The passion for domestic violence awareness and prevention started from a personal situation in her teen years and then grew into a career in law enforcement. She recently left the police department after founding Surviving to Thriving in order to dedicate more time to her podcast of the same name and to teach the headlining program of RAD Women's Self-Defense. Zach is currently an infantry lieutenant and platoon leader in the United States Army Georgia National Guard. His time spent in the Army has involved extensive training and risk assessment and mitigation techniques that have been proven in the most intense environments. Prior to joining the Army, Zach spent seven years serving as a police officer in the Smyrna community where he grew up. These years were spent receiving the best crime detection and prevention training law enforcement has to offer. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice from Penn Foster University and is currently enrolled at American Military University where he's completing a master's program in business administration with a concentration in security management. He's also a physical security professional, a credential that indicates he is an industry leader in physical security with a specialization in threat analysis. Zach found night protection services as a way to truly protect and serve by providing solutions that deter crimes and prevent citizens from victimization all right guys i hope you guys enjoy the episode it's a great conversation we talk a lot about uh, domestic abuse how to leave safely and the legal processes you can take i also take a couple questions that were asked in the preacher boys facebook group we get some of those answered as well if you want to have questions like that answered on future episodes be sure to join the preacher boys official discussion group and uh, you can connect and have a deeper conversation over there. All right, guys, now into the episode. All right, Zach and Heather, welcome to the show. Can you just give me a little bit of context? I know I told the audience a bit about you before we got started, but can you provide a little bit of context about what your role was dealing with human trafficking, domestic abuse, and those types of situations um, throughout your law enforcement career? Absolutely, and we appreciate you having us on the show first and foremost, but um, I think this is such a great topic for us to kind of follow in on your audience to kind of help educate on our perspective of things. And um, for me, I was a narcotics gang investigator. I worked on human trafficking and on the SWAT aspect of things. We did several human trafficking takedowns with uh, three letter agencies across where if, there, if we knew of like when the Super Bowl was in town in Atlanta, Atlanta is the number one human trafficking hub in the world. So mm-hmm. the Super Bowl was like a huge spot and a huge time for that. And, and we worked across different avenues with three letter agencies to make sure that we could tackle that as much as we were able. Yeah. And I was a public relations officer for the police department. Um, and I was also a hostage negotiator. So anytime SWAT went out and did those takedowns, I was, not in a 
tactical uniform, but in a professional uniform to either speak to the media or if, you know, somebody barricaded themselves, I would go in as a negotiator. And that was kind of the context that I got from it. This is not really a field. I feel like people just when they get asked in kindergarten, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? That hostage negotiator, you know, um, working with gang investigations, narcotics takedowns. I don't think most people think, hey, when I grow up, I'm going to do that. So what led you guys to that field specifically? And what was it that kind of put that in your mind? Like, oh, this is how I want to kind of serve is, is doing this. So I did not decide that I wanted to be in law enforcement until I was 18 years old. Um, It was never a dream of mine. It wasn't like I was, you know, in kindergarten, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a police officer. Um, I really, I worked in a daycare for four years and um, I really wanted to be a bakery chef, but I always watched crime shows. So, you know, Law and Order SVU and Criminal Minds and all this stuff. So I was like, you know what, why don't I just do a ride along with a police officer? And uh, one of the, I was in theater as well as a theater geek. One of the parents in the theater group said, oh, you know, we're really good friends with a police officer. So I'll do an intro and, you know, you can go ahead and do a ride along. So I did a ride along on a, um, on Halloween night. It was a pub crawl and it was the coolest thing that I've ever done. You know, it was, you had people that were passed out in the park. You had people that were doing, you know, it was an insane night. There were fights everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. And so I was applying to colleges and I hadn't um, declared a major yet. I'd also, like, I applied to culinary school. I applied to college for an early childhood education. And I changed my major in everything. And I did a criminal justice degree, which in hindsight probably wasn't the smartest decision because, (laughs) you know, you can't do a lot with a CJ degree. Um, But yeah, that's kind of how my journey began there. And I'm completely different where... Um, I actually probably middle school came up with the idea of wanting to be a police officer, um, not necessarily gang related, but um, in that specialty. But I wanted to, I was always the guy that got in a fight with a bully. I hate bullies, right? So every fight, I middle school, high school was me seeing a bullying incident happen. I'd go beat up the bully because I was always the bigger guy of the group, right? So it kind of, that fed into not only law enforcement, but military and what we're doing with surviving and thriving. Um, you know, I hate when people pick on somebody that is seen as vulnerable. Um, I hate seeing that being exploited. Um, so it really became a passion aspect. Uh, as I started in law enforcement, I, I read a book called the Natasha's, um, a fantastic read about human trafficking and the epidemic that it really truly is. And I read that during my undergrad and it kind of highlighted the consumerism aspect of why, when, where, why people are um, consuming trafficked women. And it really opened my eyes, which is where my initial spark into the trafficking aspect of law enforcement really came from. Did either of you know somebody who was a victim of like domestic violence, of human trafficking, or was it all just from like, secondhand information from from reading about it like you referenced the book that you read or was it something where it just just knowing like when that bubble was burst for you you were like oh that's something I need to be a part of so I was actually in a abusive relationship when I was in high school and um, I was sexually assaulted in high school so Mm -hmm. I did have personal experience um, in that world and then when I got into policing and seeing it over and over and over again it was kind of like okay I got out of the relationship that I was in, but was it because, you know, I had a support system, I had friends, uh, or was it because I moved away to college? You know, I didn't even leave the relationship until I went away to college. Um, And I, you know, I had friends telling me all the time, you know, he's not good for you. He's, you know, he treats you horrible. It's not worth it, blah, 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 you know, all these things. And never once um, took the warnings, you know, said, okay, yeah, this is probably not, the best thing, but I was also 15 years old and in love. And it was, you know, the, the only person I ever wanted to be with. So it was like, okay, I got out of that relationship. What is holding these other women back from getting out of this relationship? And I think that's really where it um, took off 
from for me to get into that abuse world and, and try to stop it. For me, my biological father that I never actually met abused my mother before I was born and while she was pregnant with me. Um, and I, I've seen the impact lasting throughout, right? Where that that's something that you can get over, you can work through, but it still stays with you. Um, so I think for both of us, it's definitely a very personal mission where we've seen it, um, seen it firsthand as law enforcement officers. And now we're just trying to make a bigger impact on it than what you can do in law enforcement. Was there a period when you were pursuing it as a career and dealing with other stories and maybe some that felt similar to ones that you had seen personally, was there ever times where that kind of triggered you or made you feel like, I don't feel like I can be in this line of work because it's too difficult seeing similar stories or similar situations? I think it was more of a, I know how to handle this situation because I've been in it and I know what to say and what not to say and what, you know, is not going to help the situation and what could. So like in the academy, when you go through um, the training, you get put into different scenarios. So it may be, you know, somebody pulled a gun on you. What do you do? And then Mm. it goes all the way to, you know, there's this woman who was raped in a park and she doesn't want to talk to anybody because she, she's been traumatized. And, um, and so it, it, it didn't make me not want to be in this, in law enforcement. It just really wanted, made me want to help that person and say, okay, like, look, you can get through this. You can move on. You can not move on, but move through it and move forward. You don't have to ignore it and forget about it and forgive, but you just, you, or you can forgive and not forget. And, um, and so that was kind of what pulled me in that direction. And um, it definitely kept me in law enforcement and wanting to um, go down that path and really become like a public relations and somebody who's involved, really involved in the community, involved in, making sure that people are aware and know that there are resources out there, you know, to, to get help and get through things like that. One of the things that you said that I think is interesting and I think really helpful is a lot of people when they are approached with someone who's been abused, you know, sometimes the things that they think of to say or the actions they take are not helpful or useful. I'm curious, and I struggle with this all the time doing this show, is that sometimes when someone tells you and gets vulnerable and shares something so traumatic that happened to them. Um, it can be difficult to know what to say, how to be helpful. Um, can you give a couple examples of what would be helpful if someone comes to you and tells you about a traumatic experience? Like what should the response of the listener be, um, in a scenario like that? So I think on a podcast show, it's a little different, um, because they are coming to share their story. You can ask questions that may, sound like victim shaming so a lot of the questions that um i ask are why didn't you leave and in a personal context if somebody comes to you and they are in an abusive relationship and you're asking them why don't why aren't you leaving why don't you leave that is victim shaming in and of itself and it's making it about the victim and not the abuser and it's saying like you know this is your fault why aren't you leaving you need to do something about it when that's not you know, that's not the right question to ask. And it sucks because a lot of people are just trying to help. Um, right. and they don't realize that it can be very victim shaming, but in a podcast sense, everybody, you know, like that's the main question is why didn't you leave? What can we give? What information can we give to other women in this situation or in your sense on your podcast, other people that are in the movement, you know, information on right. why they may not leave. So I think those are two different um, scenarios, but especially like a personal one-on-one contact, it would be, is there anything that I can do to help you? Is there anything that you need from me? What are you going through? What, you know, just giving that person time to vent and talk uh, because that person is not going to leave that situation until they're ready to, and they're not going to listen to any advice that you give them until they're ready to hear it. And which is unfortunate because, you know, you want to get them out of that situation, but the statistics are that, you know, people leave seven to eight times before they truly leave a situation. Mm -hmm. Many times you just want to give whatever you can instead of asking them what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing and just give yourself as a resource. And I think a big part of that, she kind of hit the nail on the head is you don't want to point the finger at the victim. You know, a lot of what we're 
pushing with our nonprofit and a series we're starting on her podcast is how do we treat the problem? And the problem is not the victim, right? That's the symptom of domestic violence. The problem is the male and the male mindset, or if there is a male that is being abused, the female mindset that drives them to that violence. So when you're structuring these questions and structuring this conversation, definitely being very supportive, thanking them for sharing, I think is very huge because that's very difficult for somebody to share. Um, but also realizing that, you know, the, the blame needs to be put on the problem. What's the problem right. um, and not the victim and, you know, why didn't you leave, but more looking at why is he, what's triggering him so we can avoid it until you're ready to leave. When someone comes to you and shares one-on-one, it's not the time to ask, well, why didn't you do this or why not? But I think it is helpful to understand the mindset of someone who is being abused. And so one of the things that's come up on the show just indirectly is a lot of people tend not to leave abusive situations because they feel like if they don't successfully leave, it's going to make the abuse much worse. Um, And this has come up over and over again on the show you know, I, I felt like I couldn't leave because my husband was always watching me. I felt like I couldn't leave because I was a minor. So I want to hit some of those questions and just see from a law enforcement angle what the what the safest option is in a couple different scenarios. So um, one of the first things that I was curious about is how can a spouse safely exit an abusive home where they are being monitored all the time, whether by their abuser or by people who are assisting the abuser and keeping tabs on you, like in church context, sometimes people, well-meaning church people can be a liability to you when you're trying to get away from uh, abusive husbands. So what's the safest way if, if a spouse is being abused, what's the safest way to make that exit? So the first step would be to find somebody that you trust to be able to talk about that situation or to know that you have somewhere to go, at least for that first night. If at all possible, being able to do that research of finding that emergency shelter or knowing where your police station is. Um, If you walk into any police department and you say, I need to find a domestic violence shelter and you're over the age of 18, they will direct you in the right location and tell you where to go. The second thing that I would do is make a a go bag, put in there all of your essentials. If you have a passport, your passport, credit cards, if you have Mm -hmm. them, um, chances are if you're being um, directly monitored and all of that, you probably won't have cash. Um, So if you you are getting a allowance uh, from your spouse, and they, you know, aren't really checking exactly how much money you're spending. If you can take a dollar each time and build up 40 to $50, um, that's enough, at least for the first night to get you somewhere to get you out. Um, and a pair, you know, some clothes, that would really be it. Uh, when you get to the a shelter, they have deodorant, they have shampoo, they have, you know, toothbrushes and toothpaste and all of that essential thing, all the essential things that you need. So I would not um, worry about that and worry about putting those types of things in your go bag. I would really focus on passport identification, clothes and money if you have it. Um, If you don't have a way to start getting money, um, just leave. And then at, you know, at at some point you'll be able to build that fund up. And then um, a lot of times when you get to the shelters or go to the police department, they have more resources there. Chances are, you know, your husband's maybe give it like 10, 15 minutes after they've left the house and I would leave right then and there and not turn back. And I think a big thing that she's alluding to is preparation, right? The, the six, seven, eight times that people leave and come back, there's always a form of punishment involved and it escalates the situation, right? And one thing to be very, uh, very attuned to is it never gets better. You know, I think a lot of the victim mindset is, oh, he was angry this one time, it'll get better. Or he only did it the one time, it'll never happen again. Yet there's always, always ends up being something that makes it worse, right? So if you leave and come back, it's going to be worse. So she's talking about things that help the individual get prepared. And if you can help, if you can facilitate that preparation, if you're a friend, somebody listening that you know of, that is that has is going through the situation, helping them be prepared for that and being that safe place, I think is really key. And then finding resources like Surviving and Thriving, where we help that, help facilitate that game plan. So you're not leaving six or seven or eight times, you're leaving and you're gone. And that way you don't have 
Um, part of the issue is you kind of, if you're not ready, you might fall on your face for lack of a better term where you leave and have no resources. So you have to go back or you go into another similar situation. And that's really what we want to avoid yeah. is going somewhere where you're sustainable and have that plan in place for you to succeed. You alluded to, you know, if you're someone who's over the age of 18, you can go to a station, let them know. So obviously the path probably looks different for a minor because you obviously are under a little bit more control um, under your parents. Um, can you talk about what options minors have and maybe hitting it from both angles? Like if you're a parent who has minors in the home and you want to get them out too, or if you're just a minor and maybe both parents are abusive or one's enabling the abuse, the other's abusive. Can you just talk about kind of some of the situations with kids that, you know, you've encountered where they've been able to safely exit? If you're leaving with children, take them with you. Obviously do not leave them in the home um, because the abuser can use that as collateral um, and or start abusing your kids if they're not already doing that. So 100% take them with you. And most emergency shelters allow kids with them. And I would say that first night, don't worry about legal ramifications because domestic abuse has become such a prevalent thing that a police officer is not going to send you back to your household to continue being abused. They will allow you to stay separated until proceedings happen. And what will happen is when you get to the shelter, they'll call defects and they will, you know, do an evaluation and then, um, they'll set up, um, supervised visitations and all of that with, um, with kids and the, uh, abuser, because they still do have parental rights. Um, and until the proceedings finish, they have all of those parental rights, but you can limit that into supervised um, visits or, you know, visitation and, and stuff like that. For minors who are wanting to leave an abusive situation, I think that I would just go straight to the police department and, you know, say that you need to talk to somebody about um, abuse that's going on in the home. I can't speak for the entire nation, but I know the police department that we worked at um, was leading um, Georgia, you know, the county that we were in was leading Georgia in sex crimes, uh, solving and, and keeping it off the streets, not, you know, perpetuating it, but <laughs> not sex <leading> crimes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, children abuse and domestic violence. Uh, we had a lot of, um, uh, groundbreaking uh, laws that came in um, from our county. And so we took it very seriously when a kid came and uh, made an allegation. Um, and if you're in a county that maybe is not as progressive, I would just stand your ground, really say like, I don't want to go back, you know, over and over again, do not, you know, let them convince you to go back into the home until, you know, DFAX comes out or somebody comes and does an evaluation at your house. DFAX is? Department of Family and Child Services. Is that the same as CPS or is it? Yeah, okay. Child Protective. Yes, okay. we call it, it's DFAX here. Yeah, it's um, usually state by state, but every state oh, okay. has some form of that. Yeah. Some form of protection for, for kids. Yeah. I would just be very adamant about it because it, it can, you know, if your parents are really good at manipulation, they may be able to, you know, try to convince police officers that nothing needs to be done. Right. But I would continue to, you know, if this is really, you want to leave and you want to get out, make that stand. Don't allow your parents to manipulate the police officers, you know, come in with, right. if you can, if you have evidence, that would be amazing, you know, come in with documentation, even keeping a journal, um, you know, for months, you know, just try to hide it from your parents and um, write everything that happens, a daily journal, because at least that's something that you can bring to the police and say, I've been writing everything that's happened to me for the last three months. Can you please do something about it? Um, and I think that DFACS or CPS is under such a light right now that they're trying not to let people fall through the cracks. I think it was the very first episode he mentioned he, cause I asked, I asked the question, I said, did you consider as a minor going to the police? And he was, when you are a minor, like even when you're 17, 18, you think you look at your your teacher's parents, pastor as like the ultimate authorities in your life. And he just was like, I thought the police would come out. And then my 
my pastor would say, oh, there's nothing going on, and then they would leave. And the idea of them actually investigating further was like he didn't even think that was a reality. So I think that just knowing that there is an, an ability to speak out without being, you know, the police aren't there to question you to make sure that, you know, like they're not going to treat you like the suspect, essentially, when you come out, they're going to actually look into it. And I think what you brought up is important, too. If the police aren't listening to you, you have other agencies that are there to double check the police doing a thorough investigation. So that's really helpful. Um, Zach, did you have something you wanted to add into that? Yeah, I was just going to say times have changed for sure. Um, I don't know how old or how long ago your first guest. Like 2004, 2003, somewhere in there. And there's a much bigger emphasis on it now, especially human trafficking and that aspect of things. But um, the thing I wanted to add was there beyond law enforcement, because I know for a lot of kids, it can be scary to go to the police department or you might not have the ability to get to the police department. Um, But there are mandated reporters, people that you can go to that are mandated by law to report domestic violence of some sort. So that could include sexual abuse, domestic abuse, anything along those lines. And I think knowing who those people are, like the teacher at school, mandated reporter, right? They have to report that. And if they don't, there's a bigger legal issue attached to that. Um, So I think that's also another avenue to definitely express to the younger crowd to realize you don't have to talk to the cops, but there are people within that you can speak to that have to then report it and facilitate you getting to the police. I do want to add in one thing to that just specific. And I know, I know you guys aren't specifically involved in um, kind of this world specifically of independent Baptist churches, but I do want to just throw in, and this might be partially a question, but uh, one of the issues that I see over and over again is those mandatory reporters don't often report um, when you're working with like the organizational kind of protection of abusers. Um, like for example, there's a, there's a church in, um, in a, I want to say Temecula, um, but in that area and they've had about four or five sexual abuse cases involving church staff and um, members of the church. And in their, um, in their policy, their written policy for reporting abuse, um, they actually say that the case should not be reported to authorized law enforcement officer without first discussing the case with the pastor, deacon, staff member, or female reporter. Um, so there's, and there's other churches like that that have had where I've seen people scan documents and send them to me where they encourage you not to go to law enforcement for someone who's in a situation like that, where should, what's the best route? Is it just calling into the station? Is it, you know, cause I know even then it's a concern of like, if a cop car pulls up outside your house and you've got abusive parents or outside your church and it's abusive ministry person, people can get on edge really quick. So is that the best route or is there any other way to, to get around that? I think there are, two things to look at in that one is yes going straight to the police would be a better when you're in that type of organizational protection right Um, another thing to look at is the credentialing of the school and the credentialing of the teacher you know there there are certain standards legally and again state to state could be very different in georgia i'm speaking on the georgia sense but a lot of states mirror each other in this fashion where you can lose a teacher can lose the ability to teach a pastor can lose the ability to be a pastor. Um, if it's brought to the authorities in the proper manner. Right. So that kind of leaves the onus on a motivated parent or somebody like yourself where you're getting this message out there. So when that information comes to you, you know, facilitating that to the proper authorities in that area, to start that paper trail. Cause that's the big thing. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. None of this is going to change overnight. Right. But if you can start that movement toward getting those people fired, the organization shut down, legally speaking, there are avenues to do that, that, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to court yourself and hire an attorney and fight that battle. It's you send it to the authorities that say, Hey, they are not mandatorily or they're not reporting this mandated reporting status this needs to be taken care of and charges can be taken on them. And there's just another avenue of removing them from that situation. Get 
to that point, like that starting point, if you're not comfortable going to the police and you don't know how to, because, you know, CPS and defects, they can always, you know, they can be very difficult to get a hold of because they are very swamped, especially, you know, California and um, those areas, um, just because population. Uh, find a mandated reporter that's not within that movement. If you have a primary care doctor, if you go into the ER, if you go to the hospital, um, you know, there are mandated reporters all across the nation. Um, and it is whether they know you or they don't know you, if they suspect that what you're saying is true, they're, they're mandated to report. And um, if you find that person that's not in that movement that will do that, you'd say that too, they'll report it because they don't want to lose their license because they're not protected by an organization. They're not protected by anybody right. or anything. They want to protect themselves, so they will report. In a case where someone does report, how quickly can a protection order be put in place for maybe a spouse, a spouse with children? Like, is it something where, you know, they're going to have to wait three weeks where a spouse could show up at any time and there not be any protection for them? Like how, how quickly is that usually put in place? So you can get a TPO, an emergency TPO, um, the and first day. At just to specify, TPO is a temporary protection order. Right. So it's not going to be a long term, but just to like specify that definition. How short term are we talking? Like a week, a two 30, weeks? It's a 30 day per, okay. or no, sorry, from 30 days to a year. Okay. And then at a year you can renew it. And um, it's it doesn't ever, it expires, but it's not like it's one and done. You can always renew it. Um, okay. And so you can go into a judge and they can order it that, that day. So like if you go to the court system on a Monday at 8 a.m., you'll get it whenever you leave court. So for TPOs, here's, here's the thing that needs to be realized. A TPO is a piece of paper, right? It's great to have, but it's not going to stop anything from happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I worked more cases of aggravated stalking, which is what it's called here in Georgia, when somebody violates a TPO. Um, I've worked more cases of aggravated stalking than I did of actual TPOs I facilitated taking out, right? So what you need to realize is it, it you can get it that day, same day, usually 24 hour turnaround, depending on how quick the sheriff's department can find the individual, it, it, they have to be served, right? So it's not in effect until they're served. So if they can't find them for two weeks, well, that's two weeks. But we also have to realize it doesn't create that protective bubble. So if you're at a friend's house, he can still show up and that piece of paper is not going to stop him if he's motivated to harm you still. Right. So I think that's a huge, a huge thing to realize. It's good to have definitely one step in the process, but realize it's not what's going to protect you long-term from actually receiving more violence. Right. And it's also a good step to have because like you said, with aggravated stalking, you can't get that aggravated stalking charge without a TPO or, or PPO, which is yeah. a permanent protective order. Okay. Um, and that is what sends them to jail. So essentially, and we, um, we, we actually had a, a temporary protective order issued against somebody um, this year and kind of understood a little bit more about the process. And essentially it seems like it just gives, if something else happens, it puts more legal ammunition against that person than it does. I mean, obviously like there's nothing ultimately, no, no verdict from anybody is going to protect you more because ultimately the person's going to do what they're going to do that that's they're breaking the law in the first place anyway. Um, but it seems like the main purpose is that it gives you extra ammo to say, look, they had this protection in place. They violated that as well. So they're obviously, you know, just putting aside all the rules that are being put on them. Um, I had a guest and they actually asked this question specifically for this episode. Um, and they shared, um, they shared on their interview with me about a situation like this. So, there was a protective order placed, um, this is a very specific scenario, placed against um, an abusive father to their kids. And uh, their kids were in a Christian school. And the Christian school essentially didn't choose to follow the protective order and allowed the dad to come pick up the kids and essentially told her, like, we're not following some random order. We're following God's law kind of thing is what they were. their argument was. Um, so in religious schools, I know public schools are definitely have a lot more clear cut guidelines and things, but in a religious institution, are they required to abide by protective orders and what recourse does a victim have if a school is ignoring or breaking that, that order? 
so the, we have this great thing in America that is called separation of church and state, and it's for that exact reason. Um, it if there it's is supposed a, to be for that exact well, reason, yes, <laughs> and so if you have a uh, you know the the law trumps um, in most cases trumps um, religious things, especially when protecting a victim. Um, right. You know, it, religion can trump things in um, having rights against you know vaccination or free speech and things like that. But when you're abused and you you know are um, trying to protect yourself, um, religion does not play a part in what the law can or cannot do. If somebody has a protective order against somebody else, just because you're in a church doesn't mean that they can come and abuse right. you, right? The, the church walls do not null and void that TPO um, and neither does a Christian school. So um, right. the repercussions for the people that are violating that are still very real and still the same as if they did it in a grocery store. And um, I think the victim has a lot of ammo, especially because it's, you know, it's public knowledge. It's not like they came to somebody's house and it's harder to prove that they were there or not there. It's, you know, especially if the church or the school is saying, oh yeah, we definitely let them come and take right. his kids. You know, right. if you're, if you're admitting to it, then for sure you have, you know, that's the evidence that the law enforcement needs and right. they can execute whatever they want to after that. And a big piece of that, again, I always kind of break things into two, criminal and civil, right? Criminally speaking, the people that helped facilitate just became an accomplice to aggravated stalking or kidnapping because that right. ends up turning to, if he doesn't have a right to take the kids, well, now he just kidnapped children, right? right. So they just became an accomplice to that. So you're talking criminal charges can be placed on the staff. You look at it civilly speaking, if an individual wants to go that route, um, there's a you, you can sue them for violating that and not listening to the law where it becomes more of a monetarily reimbursement type thing where you're seeking damages for them violating the law as well. So there's always like two avenues you can go with your criminally or civilly. Um, and depending on the organization, civilly might be more effective that might be more harming and damaging because that very well might get more PR that might get more negative PR out there more press about what's happening because that could cause financial damages to the organization so you're talking you know a six figure seven figure settlement well that could be a huge hit to an organization like that and then the PR fallout after that so right. definitely something to consider as that happens. I've spoken with a, a couple lawyers since starting the show and a lot of them involved in a case like this. And one of the things that they've encouraged me to do with the show is just like broadcast that this is going on because whatever legal outcome there is, which every legal case has its own. I mean, it could be years before you see some kind of final decision made. And at that point it's out of people's minds. Um, just keeping a public awareness of, Hey, this is what's going on. This is my story. And I think people, coming on and sharing their story, it plays a huge role in like seeing action happen. Like we just saw, um, just for context, there was a, there was a religious boarding school, um, in Indiana that's been operating, has had accusations of abuse for several, several years, like lots and lots of problems through there. And they just shut down this year. Um, they lost their insurance and I, I mean, no one knows the exact reasoning, but, I know that the son of the founder came out and was speaking out publicly. There was a Dr. Phil special about it. I've hit it on the show. Like that was one of the most downloaded episodes of the show. Uh, there's been just a ton of public information revealed about what's been going on at the school. And I think like, I don't know that it's completely solely responsible for that, but I think that you'd absolutely have to say like, Oh, all of that played a factor in when you're reviewing a case for insurance or for, you know, whatever part of the school or organization, whatever that needs, they're going to look at that stuff and be like, Oh, something's going on here that we don't feel comfortable endorsing. So um, I think the PR thing is really important. Yeah. I was going to say to that effect, you know, what you're doing, it's very similar to what we're doing with domestic violence and surviving to thriving. You know, if, if nobody's talking about it, 
then it's never going to change. Right. right. So I applaud the mission that you're on because you're bringing it to the forefront. And from anything I've seen or heard in the discussions we've had about it, nobody else is doing that because there are so many people are afraid of the repercussions that come from it. But it's just like standing up to that bully in high school. Right. Right. they're going to keep being a bully until somebody stands up and shows them that's not going to be tolerated anymore. Right. So right. the fact that you're having the conversations, I think is so empowering to so many people. Um, so keep up that, even though there are those legal repercussions that, you know, right. we've talked about a little bit, but at the end of the day, you know, this is the right thing to do because, you know, Susan G. Komen became huge because they brought breast cancer to the forefront. Right. right. It's no different than what we're doing with domestic violence or what you're doing with abuse in those circles where you bring it to the forefront, then people know about it in order to care about it. And I think it's just a great cause. And I definitely want to dive into surviving to thriving here. I have one last kind of practical question and it kind of goes toward the side of people. Um, Cause I've gotten a lot of messages about this too, just about, you know, take care of yourself while you're digging into all these stories. Um, you know, people who are dealing with just the, you know, are dealing with loved ones going through these like crazy legal battles or dealing with an abusive spouse or, and so for people who are helping victims of domestic abuse, and obviously in a, in a second, I want you guys to talk about surviving and thriving. Um, but how do you guys keep mentally healthy and keep from, especially when you were on the front lines of, you know, law enforcement side, seeing these horrific cases every day, how do you not carry that baggage with you? Um, because I know for me, I'm nowhere near as involved in that sense, but I know that there's times where I'll do two or three interviews back to back and I feel drained, you know, the rest of the week because of it. And my wife and I were talking before doing the interview and she's actually the one that brought up this question, but we were talking about when we used to work with an orphanage and, um, I remember there was a, um, she's probably four, maybe five, I want to say four, um, just adorable little girl at the orphanage and she was there and the, the orphanage, the guy that ran the orphanage was telling us, he's like, it's so good that we got her now because she was about to be sold by her, by her grandfather into like prostitution, slavery. And I just remember like when you're looking at this innocent, sweet little girl and you know that that's kind of the future that would be laid out for her, and it is the future for millions of girls around the world like you know that exists but the minute you can put a face to it it can cr- like that crushed us like like n- nothing else and so how do you guys keep from the side of helping people and facilitating help for people how do you keep a positive mindset how do you stay motivated and how do you not let that kind of overtake you and just you know be something that you're like i can't do this anymore you know, I think in a moment of transparency, which is a army vet and police officer, I don't do often. Right. Um, in a moment of transparency, I, I don't think it's possible. I don't think mm-hmm. it's possible to not carry the burden with you. Um, I, where we were police officers was the town I grew up in and mm-hmm. some, I can't tell you how many friends I ended up arresting from similar circumstances of domestic violence. And, Um, you know, I, I took it personally and just like the bully in high school, if I didn't take it personally, I wouldn't have gotten involved. Right. Right. But I hated seeing that. So, um, to maintain mental health is difficult. I know I've been in dark places during my law enforcement career. I know she's been in dark places where, you know, you can't get images out of your head or you can't get that face of the abuser out of your mind. And, and we're not even the ones being abused. right? Right. So, I think it, it draws back to what you're doing right now, sharing that story, talking with people that are familiar, um, not trying to compartmentalize it because if you compartmentalize it, it's going to boil over eventually. Right. right? Yeah. So the biggest piece for mindset and resilience for me is maintaining that conversation. Keep having that conversation. Don't let your ego, which is a huge fault for law enforcement and military, both don't let your ego overtake the need the human basic human need of sharing and finding people that care about that same cause Um, and that's a huge piece to it to me I definitely agree with what Zach is saying Um, when I first started everything was compartmental compartmentalized don't you know bring it home keep your work life and your home life separate and you know your your spouse isn't gonna understand what you're going through or any of this so don't talk to them and it was just so deteriorating to your mental health and it's just Mm -hmm. so not good and there's been a shift since then that 
you know, they've created peer-to-peer groups so you can actually talk to your peers, um, you know, mental health, um, help within law enforcement community has grown so much. Um, it used to be that, oh, you get to go see this psychologist and it, it won't be reported to your supervisor, but then it really was. And so everybody yeah. was terrified to go because they knew that they could lose their job over it. Um, and so they've really created this space where um, people can talk about what they want um, and they, you know, it, and it's needed to talk about. And um, a lot of what was preached to like my community when I first became a police officer was let them vent, but don't talk to them about it, right? Mm-hmm. Don't get into the, the middle of it. But it, it's really not helpful to not have a sounding board, to not be able to con- talk about your emotions and why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. Right. Yes, it's great to vent to somebody, but to work through those complicated emotions that you're having, you really have to have somebody there to talk to and, and talk through um, what you're going through. So I don't think that anybody overcomes it or pushes it to the side. It's really just being able to let yourself be open and talk and um, not be shy about, okay, yeah, that's great that you're this big burly man, but it's okay to cry or it's okay to, you know, be angry at something. It's okay to be upset. Um, It's okay that, you know, it hurt you. Um, And I think that's a huge part of how we keep our mental health sane um, is that we have an open dialogue between ourselves of, okay, that, that really sucked. Let's talk about it. I, I don't have law enforcement or military background, but I know I've seen, I've seen friends go, I'm a lot. I think I'm actually one of the only people in my like immediate high school circle that didn't do any kind of military service. And, you know, it's been varied what I've seen with them, but I have seen a couple that have shut down quite a bit of, you know, and I think some of it's just the culture. I don't think it's a secret that like there's a, a, an alpha culture of don't show, you know, don't let them see you bleed. Don't let them see you cry. Don't let them, you know, and I think, and even within law enforcement, you mentioned like this fear of showing emotional vulnerability. And one of the big things that I just constantly think about when it comes to law enforcement is the people that aren't affected, the people that aren't empathetic, those are not the people who should be in that job because those are the people who, you know, when you see police being abusive, when you see police that are overstepping their bounds, it's the people that can shut off that emotional side and not feel anything. And so it's encouraging to me when I hear that there's developments being made of, you know, peer to peer groups, being able to talk to a therapist as a law enforcement officer, because emotional, you know, empathy and compassion is not a weakness. Like that's, that's one of the biggest ways you're going to be able to help victims long term and make proper decisions about this kind of stuff. So um, I think that's a good, good point to end on as far as the practical side. I do want to give you guys some time to talk about um, surviving to thriving and um, kind of the nonprofit realm, because you, while you're not involved on the law enforcement side as much anymore, you guys are definitely taking some big steps to ensure better protection for those who have been, you know, abused. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, Surviving to Thriving is a nonprofit geared towards women of domestic violence. We do lifestyle learning courses, things like GED courses or how to open a bank account, budgeting, savings, uh, retirement, building your LinkedIn profile and your online social media presence and um, just different things like that. Something that kind of sets us apart from other um domestic violence nonprofits is we have a trauma-based self-defense program that I teach. And so it's geared towards women who have been through trauma. um, And instead of just shoving them in a ring and putting them in a situation where it could trigger going back to being abused and saying, okay, fight for your life when that's all they've done for the last however many years, um, it really walks them through the the shift in mindset and the um, how to, you know, process the triggers that are going to happen if you know you are attacked or anything like that like it, it, it will trigger you um but it helps them work through that process um and so we're doing that and then we also in a, hopefully this next year we'll be purchasing apartment complexes and um doing sustainable housing because like we talked about earlier a lot of the, the risk or the aversion to leaving is falling flat on your face and not having anywhere to go and being homeless. And uh, so we are developing housing 
where it's a fully furnished apartment, you've got food, you've got utilities and everything, and you learn how to rebuild your life and you learn how to budget and save so that you can afford an apartment, you can afford groceries, you can afford, you know, that, you know, treating yourself and, and, and things like that. Um, and really learning how to do all of that without a, um, influence, um, of an abuser. And that's kind of the vision in a 30 second spiel. <laughs> if someone was listening to this, I know we have a wide variety of listeners. If there's someone who wanted to support, if they wanted to get involved in helping, you know, helping out with the vi- the vision and mission that you guys are on, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you um, and get partnered up with you? So the best way to do that would be to email me um, and then also find us on social media. So my email is heather.knight, K-N-I-G-H-T at twothriving.org, T-O, and then we're twothrivingatl across all social media platforms. Um, that would be the best way. Perfect. And then you have a podcast as well, um, which is by the same name, Surviving to Thriving. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know you, I think you kind of run a little bit parallel to what I'm doing. You're talking to a much broader spectrum of guests, but can you talk about kind of maybe a peek at some of the stories you've had or some of the people you've had a chance to interview with that show? Yeah. So we have two different types of interviews that we do, kind of like you, where um, we have the survivor that comes on and shares their story. And then we also have um, experts in their fields that come on. So we've had financial experts, LinkedIn experts, um, uh, psychologists, um, therapists, and, and the like come on as well as mindset coaches. And so I've had a few interviews with even people who were stuck abroad being abused. Well, they're American citizens. They had no way to get home. And those have been really interesting stories because I never thought that that would be something that happened. Um, You know, somebody taking them abroad and isolating them from their family that way. It just wasn't a thought. And then it was like two, three episodes of different people. And I'm like, okay, this is more prevalent than we thought. So now, you know, right. trying to figure out, okay, how, what can we do to help that population? Um, but then also bring on the experts and talking about mindset because that seven to eight times where before a woman leaves, it it's about, you know, the material things and all of that, but it's also about preparation, like Zach said. And part of that preparation is your mindset and how do you shift that mindset into being, okay, I don't want this anymore. I don't need this anymore. And I'm going to take that leap of faith and figure it out. And so that's a lot of what we do on the podcast. And two super interesting things that we are developing and should be out soon. Um, I'm actually going to end up hosting a couple of the episodes where we're focusing on the male perspective. I mentioned earlier, treating the problem, not the symptom. So I'm going to be speaking to other men that are experts in the field of mindset, psychology. They've helped with, um, relationship counseling and talk about what they're doing to help the male get his mind right to not ever need to abuse. So that's going to be um, airing probably in April or so we'll have a, uh, or May, excuse me. We'll have a few of those episodes out. We're trying to get those recorded up right now. And then we also have a super exciting conference. I've got to plug the conference that we're doing in September um, that is focused on mindset, resilience, and overcoming trauma. It's going to be hosted here in Atlanta at the end of September. Uh, we're still ironing out some details, but we've got a pretty good baseline and some really good speakers coming in where we're hoping that'll really propel this conversation onto the forefront by having a huge three-day conference about it. I know I didn't bring up that we're going to talk about this, but one of the, one of the things I want to hit too is in the conversation about this, there are churches, colleges, organizations that want to create safer environments for, um, you know, those who are attending people who are members, staff, um, and Zach, you work, uh, you have a security company where you do, um, you know, basically create plans for companies, organizations, churches to really create safer environments for their employees and their attendees. Can you talk a little bit about your company? And, um, you know, if someone's interested and says, Hey, I have a, a, you know, a larger church or an organization, I need to set up some ground rules, um, or plans. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, that's my, passion project where surviving to thriving was actually going to be a branch of night protection services. But then we saw the overarching value of creating its own entity. 
Um, so Night Protection is a security consulting and design firm where we help uh, organizations like you're talking about, churches, schools, um, movie theaters, all the way up to large organizations, high-rise buildings here in Atlanta and throughout the country, where we'll go in, we'll consult, we'll design a security program through vulnerability assessments, security audits, show the best ways to develop the culture to be more safe and secure. And that goes all the way into physical security, uh, physical safety, cyber security and safety, and psychological safety and security, where we talk about like toxic leadership, which is a great theme of what I do with tactical leadership, which is my podcast and everything we're focused on, where I'm cross branding the two into how to truly develop a fully safe and secure environment for the organization top down. Um, and that's a huge piece of the conversations I have. And then also the uh, business consulting firm I've started of Be a Tactical Leader, which is focusing on how that leader can create that safe environment for their employees, their customers, their clients, or their congregation. Right. And you're, you have a podcast as well, uh, interviewing, you know, leaders and stuff that are, that are setting up security and, and working on just creating, you know, you mentioned a little bit with the t tactical leader side, but really I think it's something that'd be helpful for even pastors or people who are saying, I definitely don't want this to be a part of my ministry or organization. Uh, what steps can I take to be a better leader? Identify, you know, you've talked about everything from identifying, you know, troublesome employees to creating cultures of, you know, safety. And so I think that would be helpful for people to check out. And really both of your guys' shows are good sister podcasts to the kind of topics that I'm covering here. Um, so if someone's listening and wants to know more about that, be sure to check out, I'll put all the links in the show notes. There's way too many to go through, uh, to repeat, but, um, but yeah, I think it's all, I think it's all really awesome stuff. Um, and I think it's gonna be really helpful to people. So before we go, is there anything that you guys want to add? Because I know nobody knows your field like you do. So, um, if there's anything else that you feel like we didn't cover or that you'd like to share, um, you feel free to add that in. I think for me, just the parting note is for everybody to realize that you're not alone during this fight. And I say fight because it will be a fight. There's never an easy way to work through these situations. Even the things I do with night protection, you know, we obviously involve ourselves in the nonprofit when a little muscles needed more or less, right. Where we have right. highly trained individuals that can come in and help. But I think everybody really needs to realize that you're not alone in this fight. Keep on fighting, stay resilient, find resources like your podcast, like Heather's podcast, where we're talking about ways you can expose this and work through it. I would just say that um, look at what is happening and clearly by coming to you or me or Zach or anybody, you are not being fulfilled by whatever is happening in your life. And even though the unknown is un is scary, you have the known, right? You know that there's unhappiness, there's fear, there's all of these things in the known and you want to be happy. You want to be complete. You want to grow. And all of that's in the unknown, right? So you have to step into the unknown to reach whatever you want to reach, no matter how scary it is, and know that there are people like you and ourselves that are out there willing to help you. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys once again. I hope people check out everything. Seriously, if you guys are a fan of this show, and I know there's a lot of you out there that are always, you know, hey, put out more episodes, put out more content, that kind of stuff. So um, honestly, if you're, if you're trying to find more content related to this topic, um, and you want it from a professional perspective, I definitely recommend checking out uh, both surviving to thriving and um, tactical leadership um, and the stuff over at night protection. Uh, there's a lot of really good content out there. So Zach, Heather, thank you so much for joining me. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll have to do this again. Absolutely. It's yeah. our pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.